morning. Today's scripture reading is from the 17th chapter of Exodus, verses 8 to 15, or excuse me, 13. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Good morning. Um, I need a volunteer today. Come on down. You're the next contestant on Can You Do This? Come right on over here. All right. So, let me get some stuff out of here. No peeking. <laughs> All right. So, see this? Yes. Everybody see it? Okay, I'm going to give you one minute to create that. Create this, to make this again. Okay, I'll set it right here. You can take a look at it. And uh, it is a big piece. But I made it from the same piece of that. I don't know. You're running out of time, though. Come on. I know if I do this. Just see if you can do it. Okay, yeah, that looks pretty good. Somewhat ish. Yeah, that's somewhat ish. Oh, you want to help, Ben? Do you know how to do this? That's step up hill and then do some of the part and then go this way. That whole piece right there. Do you think you can do it, Ben? Here, I'll give you a piece. You can see if you can do it. I don't have another pair of scissors, though. You'll have to do it with just paper. Can you do it? Make it look like this? I don't know. How much time do we have here? Not a lot. Not a lot. Let's see. I think I finished it. You think you finished it? It looks just like it. It looks just like it. What do you think? Does it look just like it? Pretty close. He's got some good ideas. All right. I got a deal for you. It's not quite right, but I'm going to give you another chance. And you can ask anyone in this room for help. So go pick somebody, 
and bring them up, and we'll try it again. I'll pick one. Go pick one person and bring them up. This is a hard choice, huh? Not too many people to pick from. Okay, come on down. <laughs> You're the next contestant on Can You Do This? All right. Okay, so I have another piece of paper and the scissors, and I want the two of you to work together and see if you can be coming around this side so they can see what you're doing. All right, so this is what he did. He had sort of the right idea, but not quite. And this is all out of one piece of paper. Hmm. Tell her what to do, so make sure you're helping. Yeah, is she doing that right so far? Yeah. Okay. And then this, this hanging. Yeah, how do you get that yeah. hanging? Hmm. Those two are empty, you're right. And this part is kind of in the way there, huh? Oh, they're making some good cuts up here. <laughs> I wish you could see. I wish we had one of those uh, overhead thingies so you could see what they were doing up on the screen. Hmm? I know. Okay. Oh, she's close. What do you think? Is she close? All right. Let's see what she did. All right. She's close. She's got the middle stuff sticking up there. What do you think? It's fine, but it has to be glued. Okay. Well, that was an excellent effort. Excellent effort. Give them a big round of applause. But before you go, Dylan, Dylan, come up back up here. Before you go, I told you that you could ask anyone in this room. You chose Shirley. Who should you have asked? Yeah, because I know how to do it. <laughs> I, know, I know how to do it. You want to know how to do it? Okay, I'll show you. You were on the right track. First you cut here, about halfway up. And then you cut here, about halfway up. So you were on the right track, but you turn it over this side, and you cut about halfway up on that side. Now, here's where the hard part is. You take this, and you go like that. Just flip the one end over, and there it is. Easy peasy. No stress. Yeah, just three cuts. Real easy. And it works. It does look like a zigzag. Or from this side, it looks kind of like a number two, right? <laughs> there you go. You can take that. Um, you know, sometimes we have things that we need help with. Sometimes we don't know what to do. Sometimes we need help. Yep, that's right, Ben, we do. Sometimes we need help. And we can ask for help. And sometimes we ask, and yeah, they help a little bit. 
but they may not be able to fix it just right. Um, in the story, Alex, that's my foot. Thank you. Okay. Do you need these? Is that what you want? All right. Um, in our story today, Joshua needed some help fighting those Amalekites. So Moses went up on the hill with the staff of God, but he needed help because he needed, his arms got tired. If you have to hold your arms up like that for a whole day, I don't think I can even do it for an hour. Um, but he needed some help. And oftentimes we need help in our lives so we can go and ask God for help because God can do it. He knows how to do it. He knows the secret to doing this. But sometimes we don't always feel like we're comfortable with going to God because maybe we've really messed up and we're not sure God wants to hear from us. And so maybe we can go to a friend, especially a friend who knows God, knows Jesus, and we can ask that person to pray because that person can help God help us. Just like Aaron and her helped Moses help God. We just need to remember to ask. We need to ask God for help, and we need to ask each other for help, because we can help by praying for each other. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that we can come to you directly, and you will help us. But we thank you that we can also ask our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray for us as well. Sometimes when we feel like we're too far away from you, asking them to help us pray helps us reconnect with you and gives us the strength we need to fix the things in our lives that need help. So we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you most of all that we don't have to be afraid to come to you with our prayer, our needs, our desires, our hopes because you always hear us, and you always help. So it's in Jesus' name now that we pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the parts that make sense and the parts that are harder to understand, and for all the stories of your people and how you have come through for them. We pray that we will see how you will come through for us and how you want us to be involved in what you're doing in the world. Please give us clarity of thought and give me clarity of speech. In Jesus' name, amen. You all know that I um, work for this church and I also work for an online community that I founded called The Pilgrimage and I teach some classes there and they often make good sermon illustrations, so, <laughs> so that's probably how you know about them. Um, anyway, I teach two classes, two spiritual formation classes, which I'm taking sign-ups for for the fall if you're interested, but that's not what I'm talking about them for right now. Um, I decided there's one class that I teach that I think has something in it that's important for Christians. Um, it's about how our faith grows and changes over time that maybe we didn't expect when we first that we would say yes to Jesus. But I have a hard time getting people to sign up for that class. And so I started thinking, well, what if I created another class? Um, what would people want to study? So I posted a little survey on Twitter, and I said, 
Hypothetically speaking, if you were going to take an eight-week spiritual formation class, what would you be interested in discussing or learning about? And I offered four choices, because that's the most that Twitter lets you put up there. Um, <laughs> and so they were prayer, spiritual practices, other, please post in comments, and a spiritual what now? And most of the people, I think, most of the people voted for spiritual practices, a couple people voted for prayer, but two people voted for other and posted something in the comments. And one of the people said, I voted other, and that topic would be loving my neighbor, because if I can pray with the best of them and do spiritual practices, but love not my neighbor, then I am a resounding God. You know that, that comes from a Bible verse, right? That's in 1 Corinthians 13. And the other person, both of these people are Christians, the other person said, who was a missionary in another country, said, I am good on the 50,000 sheep prayer strategy. And I thought, okay, so first of all, <laughs> something's missing when people hear about classes about these kind of things. Like people assume, uh, people's brains are going somewhere, which isn't kind of the type of ministry that I do. But also, something's missing about Christians' understanding of prayer. Why? Why? What, what's going on here? I was really kind of startled by these reactions, because they were kind of strong reactions. I mean, I just posted a survey, right? <laughs> Do they sound a little combative to you? Um, so, but here's the thing. Somebody in this congregation once said to me recently, and this is a really good question, something like, this isn't a direct quote, my daughter self-sacrificially loves people every day at her job. Isn't that more important than going to church or praying all the time? And this goes to the scorn that the phrase thoughts and prayers is met with in the media. People just don't think prayer is anything. Which seems right. Right? What's that? Well, maybe it's the work of the maybe it's the work of the devil. I mean, certainly the devil wants to oppose prayer, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, but I'm not sure that misunderstanding prayer is necessarily the work of the devil, or just the fact that we live in a broken, sinful world. And maybe what we think prayer is for isn't really what it's for, and so it's it's not doing what we think it's supposed to do, and so therefore we just think it doesn't work. But that's not really what it's for. Okay, so here are some things that I think we need to understand about what prayer really is. Prayer is how we love our neighbor first. Before anything else, before we go out there and feed the, home, uh, feed the hungry or house the homeless or make blankets for refugees or... Um, all of the things that we do that are important, that need to happen, that show God's love to the world, prayer is how we love our neighbor first. 
prayer for ourselves gives us the power to actually love our neighbor. How many of you have gone out and done good things in the world and found them absolutely exhausting and joyless before? Why do you think people burn out? People do too much, and we do it without any backing. The power of love in the universe is God. And if we're not connecting to God and trying to love people, we're going to run out. God is infinite. We're not. There's an end to our love. But if we're praying for ourselves, we're connecting to that force of love so that we can love our neighbors. And when we're praying for our neighbors, that's loving. That protects our neighbors, that provides for our neighbors, that gives our neighbors strength. That, when we are connecting to God, who's the force of love in the universe, and we are bringing our neighbors, our family, our friends, the people in some other country, whoever, to before the throne of God, we are connecting them to the power of love in the universe. This is loving. Also, here's something else about prayer that I think we miss. Prayer is intended to involve our entire selves. So, including our bodies. So that when we do good works in the world, that is supposed to be prayer. But if you go and do good works in the world without intentionally spending time with God first, it's not going to be prayer because you didn't plug in. But if you did plug in, then everything you do that flows out of that is also prayer. So prayer is actually active. It's not just sitting around and thinking about stuff. It's partly that, but it's not just that. Prayer is how we bring the kingdom of God into what we were calling last year the empire of the world. The world is a mess. Did anybody notice <laughs> recently? It's kind of a mess. And the way that the people of God bring the kingdom of God is through prayer. Because that is how we connect to God, the king. So, because all this is true, prayer is, frankly, a battle. This is why we, a couple weeks ago we talked about rejoicing as being a weapon. The whole thing is a battle because there are forces in this world, not just demons, but in our own, our own spirits are divided, and, um, and people around us are drawn away by different things, money or relationships or whatever, and there are forces in the world that do not want God to be king. And if we have said we're following Jesus, we are on the front lines of bringing the kingdom now. It's not just when Jesus comes back. That's our job right now. And we cannot do that without prayer. So prayer is a battle. And when the Apostle Paul writes, as we read in the responsive reading, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against each other. It's not against the people out there. It's not against our society as individual people. 
But it is against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there are influences in our society that are evil. The people that represent those influences are still people. Our struggle is not with them. It's with the stuff that maybe that they're caught up in, but it's not them. So um, I have heard in a few, because we are aware (laughs) that our society is pretty messed up, and I've heard people say things recently, locally, like, I just want to fight. Somehow I need to fight. I don't think culture war is a helpful metaphor. Um, I want to say I, I would love to be a complete pacifist. I'm not, because I think that when there is literal war, often that is where the powers have taken over to such an extent that they're, ma- they're, they're using flesh and blood in their games. And so some wars, physical, literal wars need to be fought. But when we're fighting influences in our society, fighting isn't, like, physical fighting, even, I'm not convinced that, like, picketing or protests or any of that stuff is really all that effective. It's just kind of noisy. Jesus fought, fought, by staying connected to his Father, by loving people, all the people, and by praying all the way to and on the cross. Some churches focus on the seven last words of Jesus, the seven last sayings, and almost all of them are prayers. He just prayed his entire life. His whole life is a prayer. The only piece of the armor of God that's in the passage we just read out loud together um, that could be used for offense is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Everything else is protective, defensive. And the sword could also be defensive, because the next verse, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. You're defending the people. You're standing up to the bullies. Um, Also, I didn't put this in my sermon, but um, he says, to when you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm. Don't go out and pick a fight. Just stand firm. Not every aspect of life is a battle directly with the devil, but every aspect of life has been affected by sin in our world and the fact that there is a spiritual war going on between the one true God of love and peace and the forces of empire and sin and rebellion in us and around us that don't want God's rule. So, how does this have anything to do with the story that we read today that Barb talked about? Well, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, through Joshua especially, a lot of the spiritual war that the whole Bible tells us about plays out physically, in actual physical war. And so... um, in the beginning of Exodus, God calls Moses, and they, he's supposed to bring the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And the whole way that they get out of Egypt, the Bible actually describes as God fighting against the gods of Egypt. And so there are these plagues that are designed to kind of say, 
these are not gods. God is God. Um, and so the Israelites have gotten out of Egypt by the time of today's story, and they've gotten through the Red Sea. But here's something to notice about the Red Sea. When they get to the Red Sea, this is in Exodus 14, they, they get there, and the Egyptians have decided, you know what, we kind of want our slave labor back. Our whole economy is destroyed because we don't have these people. Let's go get them. And so they chase after them, and the Israelites are afraid. And God says, be still, the Lord will fight for you. We saw that happen when we talked about the story in Chronicles also. God says, I'm going to fight. You guys just watch what I'm going to do. It appears that this is what God, how God prefers his people to interact in the world. In fact, when you read the first five books of the Old Testament, a lot of people struggle with the fact that God tells the Israelites to go into Canaan and wipe out the Canaanites. But most of the time, he doesn't say wipe them out. He says, get them out. He doesn't say destroy them, like kill them all. He says, this isn't their land anymore. You've got to get them out. They need to be all gone. The Israelites don't do that. They fight a bunch of actual literal battles. Um, God is involved in some of those at some point. But to start off, God is not telling his people to be the aggressors. He is saying, I'm going to fight for you. He actually brings them to the Red Sea because he knew that if he brought them the shorter route, they would face opposition immediately, and he doesn't, it says this in, in that passage, he doesn't want them to go to war. So, they've been through the Red Sea, they have not yet gotten to the Mount Sinai where God's going to give them the Ten Commandments, but um, they have already run out of water, they're in the desert, so they've already ha faced their first, or actually second, test, um, and God has miraculously provided water in the desert out of a rock that he told Moses to strike. This is not the same time that he told Moses not to strike the rock when Moses did. Um, God tells Moses to strike the rock, the water comes out, and then all of a sudden, these people called the Amalekites show up out of nowhere. There's not even a connecting word between these stories. It just says, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Who are these people? Why are they attacking? We don't know. Like, <laughs> um, there, I went online and looked this up because Amalekites <coughs> show up in a couple other places. <coughs> excuse me, in the Bible, but I was just like, where, you know, where did this come from? Um, some people think that they actually, the Israelites got water where there had never been water before, and there are a lot of in the in that period of time in that area of the world uh, fresh sources of water were rare, and a lot of times people would fight over them, so maybe they were like, oh, these guys found water, we're going to get it. Um, but it's possible that they just wanted to pick a fight. They were, um, some people think that they were actually descendants of Esau, who is the twin brother of Jacob, who is the ancestor of the Israelites. Jacob's name got changed to Israel, and that's where the people got their name. Um, Esau was his twin brother who was probably a nice guy, maybe not the brightest bulb, um, <laughs> and didn't really follow God. Um, and his, some of his descendants created problems, other descendants created problems for the Israelites, but the Amalekites might have been from one of his grandsons. Um, but it's possible that the, 
they weren't because they're also Amalekites mentioned in Abraham's story, so people aren't totally sure. The Amalekites, however, in the Bible, are they're a real people group. They really did fight the Israelites here, but they also are a symbol for rebellion. They are people who, so last year we talked about empire as being kind of this force, the, the forces in the world that oppose God, like, and it's often represented by, it's a, represented by Egypt, by Babylon, by Assyria, by Rome. In the Bible, those countries are identified with empire because they were empires. The Amalekites were never an empire. The Amalekites are like, if the lie of Satan and the lie of empire is you could be like God, the Amalekites are like, we don't want anything to do with God. No God. Well, you don't get to be like God either. The Israelites are the people that God has chosen to represent him to the world, and the Amalekites basically want to destroy that. They don't care if they're, if they're powerful. They don't care about an empire. They just want to undermine what God is trying to do in the world. So empire wants to be God. Amalek wants to annihilate God and God's presence and God's people. In verse 14, which we didn't read in this passage, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. Make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Well, obviously, we're still talking about them. But they don't exist anymore as a people group. Um, you can find des descendants of the Romans, and you can find Assyrians still in this world, but you can't find an Amalekite. Um, a website called Kabad.org says, The nation of Amalek is long gone, but they live on as the internal enemies that we each battle on a daily basis. So in this story, this army comes out of nowhere, and they're attacking a group of freed slaves who have done literally nothing to them. This is not a military force that they're attacking. These are ex-slaves. So these are the ultimate bullies. Bullies have no agenda except to put down people that are already put down. Really, that's how it goes. So they are unjust, they're fighting ex-slaves, not military, they're unprovoked, the Israelites were minding their own business, and they're ungodly. They're attacking the people of God, they're trying to prevent the plan and the kingdom of God. So Moses gets Joshua, Joshua is kind of his, um, Moses is mentoring Joshua, to who's much younger, to lead the people after Moses isn't there anymore. Um, which <laughs> takes a really long time from this point. But um, he says, okay, Joshua, get some of the other guys and go out there and fight these people. Interestingly, he doesn't say get all of them. You would think, it's a, you know, they're facing a battle, the first battle they've ever had, and none of them have been trained to fight. They're, they were slaves. But he doesn't say get all of them. He says get some of the other guys suit up, go down there, and fight. I will go stand up on that hill over there with God's staff in my hand. This is where people <laughs> say, oh, thoughts and prayers, that's nice. 
thanks, Moses. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for nothing. But first of all, let's think about this. Moses is old already by this point. Putting him down there would be a liability to begin with. But he is not doing nothing. Moses goes up there and puts his hands up all day, and like Barb said, he's got these two friends, well, his brother Aaron and this other guy, Hur, who, by the way, if you've ever watched or read the movie Ben-Hur, that's fiction, but this is the Hur that Ben-Hur is supposed to be descended from. Anyway, irrelevant, but <laughs> a little trivia for you. So he has his hands up all day. He's praying to God. And... Aaron and her are helping him keep his hands up. And what happens when his, when his hands are up, what? They're winning. And when, he, when his hands get tired, they're losing. Right. Prayer is making a big difference here. So let's note, what can we notice about Moses' prayer? He pray, prays conversationally. We know this, he's not necessarily doing that here, but he, we already know that he has a relationship with God. He talks to God. They have this ongoing dialogue pretty much all the time. So he prays on the basis of relationship. He knows God. He knows who he's talking to. He knows what he's asking and who he's asking. He prays patiently. He prays all day long until the Israelites win. He prays faithfully, whatever it takes. Apparently, it took him putting his hands up this particular time and so he's going to do it. And if he can't do it himself, he's going to get some help. So he also prays communally. He's not just trying, he's not this one-man prayer army all by himself. He's got these two other guys who are helping him do it. And he also prays physically. This is physical. In our church tradition and a lot of other Western church traditions, it's like here, I'm sitting here, I'm standing talking. There's not a whole lot of movement. Um, we probably talk together a little more than, than some churches, but um, we stand up and sit down for singing. Uh, some of us might raise our hands. We said this a couple weeks ago, but there's not a whole lot. We don't do a whole lot of getting our bodies involved in worship, but we are human beings with bodies. And our bodies are important, and we know this because Jesus put himself into one. The fact that Jesus came here in the flesh and rose from the dead in the flesh means that our bodies matter. And so I encourage you, and we I have, I don't want to take too long, um, but I actually have some tips and some ideas of how in your own personal prayer time, you can actually get your body involved so that your prayers become more active and um, more whole person, which makes it easier to pray when you're doing your daily stuff that you do. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but we are flesh and blood. And the people we pray for our flesh and blood. And so when we struggle, we, flesh and blood, struggle on behalf of other people who are flesh and blood against the powers, what we're struggling against is 
sickness and poverty and prejudice and hostility and war and spiritual deadness and death itself. But we are flesh and blood, and those things affect our flesh and blood, and so we pray with our whole selves for other people's flesh and blood. So we can lift our hands, and we can bow down, and we can, um, if we have physical limitations, there are other things that we can do to involve our bodies. Um, but either way, we lift, first we lift people up to God in our hearts and in our minds. That's first. With or without words, sometimes it's almost more of an effective prayer to just Acknowledge God that you're in the presence of God and then just think about the person in the presence of God because maybe we don't know exactly what we should say to them. But with or without words, we lift up the person in our minds and in our hearts, and then we can lift our hands or enact something in our bodies to show and feel our prayers in our whole selves, and then we go out into the world and we bring Jesus to our neighbor in our words and even more so, not just in our words, but even more in our actions of healing and reconciliation and generosity and kindness and peace and love. Because this is how Jesus prayed. With his whole self. This is what we recognize in the institution of communion. Communion is physical. Communion is prayer. Communion means communion. <laughs> We're communing with God. We're also recognizing our oneness as the body of Christ. So we're communing with each other. It's prayer. We take our hearts and our minds and we bring ourselves before God and we confess before God what we need to confess and we remember what he did for us and then we take into our bodies with thanksgiving, the physical elements, and our bodies digest them. There's, we don't believe in Baptist churches that anything magical or transformational happens to the physical things, but something happens, our bodies digest it. And it, we are doing something physically that symbolizes to us what Jesus did physically. It reminds us that he sacrificed his whole self first in healing and teaching, and then ultimately in dying on the cross to stand up to our belief. So when we participate in the act of communion, we are also taking a stand against the bullies. We are identifying ourselves with Christ, we are identifying ourselves with each other, and we are praying we are committing ourselves again to go out into the world constantly praying and defending and supporting and sustaining the people around us. So let's do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your life of prayer, your life that was a prayer that is an example for us, and also the power that enables us to become more and more like you. We ask that you will help us to do that, and that we will take the memory of your sacrifice with us into our days.
in Jesus' name.